1: on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey, and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides, and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. You know, and guys, I want to kind of touch on one thing that, of course, you know, we all have to, as someone going through a residency program, of course there comes the board certification exam after it's all done and you guys had mentioned of course with the didactic curriculum and how that's kind of structured around the DSP and you kind of recommended some of the other tips that you recommend and how you help your residents through and prepare for the SES. Um, but you know, I'm curious because I've heard different things from different people. What are your guys's honest thoughts on the SES exam as it, as it stands
2: now? Well, you know, we've, we've actually had a very good results with the SES exam we've had, um, 34 residents and uh, minus two residents that didn't actually take the exam, we've had a perfect pass rate. Um, And our program has been, as you mentioned, modeled off of the the description of residency practice, um, and all the goals that we try to achieve for our program on a yearly basis are derived from that, uh, but also have very objective, measurable uh, things that we can uh, evaluate the residents on to, give them an idea of where they are in their preparation for that exam. I think that the,
3: I I don't know. I might turn that back on you, but yeah, (laughs) turn it back on our host. No, I think that, I think that the, it's kind is it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Like having taken the exam years ago, I remember taking it and, and I didn't go through a residency. Residencies weren't in place when I was going through my training, but I remember, um, taking the exam and much like other exams, I, you know, that a lot of times the big uh, organized exams that you might take for certifications and and specializations that it's like, you you, you take the exam and you kind of walk out like, does this really reflect, you know, what I wanted it to in terms of you being a a specialist and things like this and, and uh, that I, you know, I'll be honest, I don't know. Sometimes I think that, you know, that maybe, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, I guess, from in terms of the standard that's been there, and I guess I have confidence in ABPTS in terms of like looking at they, in terms of all the background in, you know work that they do to further the the I would just say the um, the principle that these tests are you know uh, modeling or respective of someone that would would be a specialist in like in our area in sports physical therapy. Um, that being that being said, I mean it's, and trust me, I'm not advocating this at all. But the, especially in our area with 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 sports physical therapy, the other part relative to just the the knowledge piece, the didactic piece, is how how they perform both in the clinic and then, frankly, I'd argue for a sports PT on the field, and that's very difficult if you really are looking at the the exam, I mean, that's really hard for a written exam to sort of tease that out. So um, I don't know, I'm torn a little bit. I, I mean, A, I'm glad, you know, I've had my SCS for, for years and I've been reaccredited and I'm very happy and proud that I've done it. Um, but um, I still think, you know, could it get Better, perhaps could there be some changes? And I would say, you know, probably yes. Do I still value it? If that was part of your question, do I still value it? I'd say most definitely, most definitely, because it does represent, it does represent the current, the current, how would you say, level that at least there's some background and and uh, content, you know, validity to the, to the to the exam that people do have to, you know, demonstrate that that knowledge.
2: Well, it's it's my understanding too that those individuals that that become SCS certified, uh, do a better job of of their patient outcomes and see patients in less visits than those that aren't. Uh, At least that was my understanding. I I don't have any direct literature to support that, but I know that that's one of the the, the ways that they're selling it. Yeah.
1: Well, and I know Abtree, through the outcomes registry as well with APCA, they're collecting a lot of data on that to see you Know board certification rates, outcomes wise, like how is what are we looking like? And I know when we talked with uh, Mike Fink on the SES exam um, in particular, it was really interesting when you know we kind of asked him what did he think, what would he think make the process better and through the, the whole thing. And he said that if he could say one thing that could probably make it even better is to really. The quality of the items on the test is ref- is due to the quality of the item writers and the questions that the item writers have. So he kind of said, if there's a call to action, like if you want to get the SCS exam better, have the right people have continue to have awesome people volunteering and submitting items because that's that's where it comes from.
3: Yeah, I definitely agree. Definitely agree. But I, yeah, I and mean, you might have more knowledge about that, Brandon. I know that one of our faculty is an item writer for the orthopedic. Uh, you know, for the orthopedic exam. And, uh, and he feels as though that I know that he feels that he's a learned a lot, but he has also felt as though that he's been able to contribute. And, and there's been a lot of mentoring for those folks that are involved in that. It's not just a casual process that people just submit questions. They really are mentored at meetings at CSM. They meet at CSM and have, have workshops and things. And pro- again, you probably discussed that with you know, with, um, you know, with Mike and stuff like that. So.
1: Yeah. Just the process and how like to really write an item and how it has to meet all that criteria is much more extensive than I had anticipated. Um, but in a way when you hear them, and we'll release that episode in a little bit, but when you hear kind of the reasoning, why it does make sense how they kind of do it that way. But I, I think you're it's it's to the point now where, I mean, we got to have something and I totally, and I, to go back to your one point earlier, Scott, about, um, It kind of seems, and this is kind of what Mike confirmed too, it seemed like it's testing more the knowledge component of being a specialist, but not necessarily the skill component of that. And, you know, and we also have to, and he even said, and I totally understand this, like a written exam can only give you so much. And, you know, of course, then the topic was then, well, should we have more of a competency base with it? You know, that's a question. And the response I basically got was, I don't think that's going to (laughs) happen. But which makes sense because then you'd have to go through a whole other standardized system. You'd have to get a whole bunch of people. That's going to cost a lot more money. You'd have to do with more of an accreditation thing.
3: Well, but but you know what? That going back to the old notion about like people that are able to sit for the examination, sit for the exam. It's been this way for 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 years that that if you are a graduate of a residency program, you bypass that that block number of years. Which frankly, that would be the other thing that I would change. They initially, I believe. And I might misquote it, Brandon, a little bit, but initially I think when the SCS was first developed, I believe it was like you had to have five thousand hours or 5, 000, I think it was five thousand hours in that particular area. Might have been six. But then that's really turned down. I think I don't know. I think the I can't recall what like the latest yeah. what's that? I mean it might be two thousand. Two thousand. Yeah. So that really came down and and you sort of think with the resonance have all the, have all of that information like so in a year. They have the checklists and they do the skills and they have the specific content and stuff and so they are, in fact, getting judged on their competency along with their knowledge, and we'd like to think that if they pass the residency, that's part of the assurance there that they that they are, have completed the competency base and so okay, let's test let's test your knowledge. But then the, the response would be, okay, well, then everybody has to do a residency before you, before you could sit for the exam. We're, I don't believe that we're there yet. I wouldn't call for that because of just numbers of programs. And, and in some ways, the cost the cost of education, people are coming out of entry-level programs with lots of debt. And they just, you know, they, they, a lot of people can't afford to, to you know, take, to do a residency. You know, some can't so anyway.
1: Yeah, and, and Vien, I want to kind of ask one follow-up as a resident's perspective, Is what, how did you, would you recommend, apart from, you know, what they've given you from the program for preparing for the SES, um, how would you recommend furthering and kind of getting the study aspect of that while you're going through it?
0: Yeah, um, I think a part of it goes back to that prior question you asked, too, like, you know, what do we think of the SES and all, and I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about People going just to study for the SES route, but I think a lot of people ask me, like, hey, again, what's your thoughts? Should I just study for the SES or do residency? And I go, well, okay, that's two completely different things. I think a lot of people think that the residency is a study guide for the SES, but I don't feel that way at all. I think it works on a lot of other stuff. Um, So to answer the question you just asked, um, I think preparing for the SES is just go to the residency itself, so we're exposed to all our didactic. During our, our particular program didactic, we go over current concepts. Uh, I feel like we touched a lot of the literature that I'll kind of say is classic and has been around That is like common knowledge for sports PTs. And um, our mentors do a really good job of updating the folders on any new evidence that comes out. Um, aside from that, we just, I think recently, in the recent years at least, they added a SCS review guide that we do. So um, we go through, I think it's 14 or 15 chapters total half an hour each and we go, each person does a section, we go over reviewing it and then at the end of it, um, when we're done with the residency, essentially we have like um, cliff notes of all the chapters that we all kind of contributed to. And then um, at the end we were recommended by a few of our faculty to uh, go, because they've done it before too, to kind of do their own self-study course. So like I might go through a route, either through Medgridge or Evidence in Motion as an extra preparation for it just because I'm just a bit more cautious and nervous about test taking than others.
1: Yeah, no, and, and that makes sense. And I think it, I really like how they kind of said earlier how they kind of structure that part on the DSP because, ironically, like that DSP serves as the blueprint for that exam, and that's what that's one thing that Mike had mentioned too. So he couldn't he couldn't give me one direct source to like recommend for studying because you know he technically couldn't do that, but he's like, if you want to know, check out that DSP because that's pretty much the blueprint. So. I think that and finding a resource that works for you like that, I think, I mean, I think that's great. I haven't taken the SDS. I'll be taking OCS in the next year, but so I can't speak for SDS, but.
0: Kind of what he said too, because he wouldn't give you a fair amount. Like that's how I feel. I feel like the vibe is that anything's game. And like I've even mentors have said like, Hey, you know, there's a hit issue of JSPT in April. I think you should read that theme issue. Uh, we've had theme issues like that pop up in exams before. And so just being aware of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely going to prepare well for this because I got to look at everything. I don't know exactly what's going to be on there.
1: And guys, you know, you guys had mentioned a lot of the pros when it comes to, you know, Gunderson's program and such. But if we want to look at kind of like like measured outcomes or measured numbers, tracking this a little bit, um, what are some of the things that you guys have found measurable when it comes to you know, the residents regarding like patient outcomes, resident satisfactions, or any other things that you guys specifically measure to kind of track how you guys are doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, the first thing that we, we use as a staff is actually a photo focus on therapeutic outcomes. Um, so the residents also utilize that and we take the numbers from that as well. We meet uh, twice a year as a staff and kind of go over our numbers as a whole and individually so we can address any of the areas that are, are, are limitations as, as a staff or again, individually. Uh, one of the things the Medical Co- uh, Foundation uses is a clinical perspective survey, um, and unfortunately that's a little bit of a challenge for us because they require four actual residents to group the information, so it's anonymous. Uh, so our residents are grouped with optometry, so if there is an issue with those, it's we can't exactly tell if it's us and if we need to address it, and so we're still... In the process of trying to figure out a better way to do that, short of just coming up and asking our residents, and then it's not anonymous anymore. So, uh, at least the Medical Foundation has, has said we shouldn't do that. So, we're hoping through our other measures that we do have, uh, we also use MedHub, which are uh, surveys that are at the end of every didactic uh, section. The residents will get a uh, MedHub review of the actual. Uh, uh, Re- instructor and then at the end of their mentoring sessions as well they'll uh, the resident and the instructors will get a med help survey uh, to evaluate each other um, and those are then reviewed with the residents and with the, the uh, individual instructors and or mentors uh, at midterm and final and then that's the last time when <coughs> the residents have either the opportunity to have a written or verbal feedback on how they think uh, things are going. is at the midterm. Hopefully if those other things aren't sorted out with our other measures, uh, they have the chance to, and feel comfortable enough to to tell us their feedback and how we could improve. Uh, I think for the most part, a lot of them feel more confident and more comfortable at the final review um, than they do maybe at the midterm and are more, uh, willing to give some of that feedback if they were nervous about it before, and Scott can speak to that too.
3: Yeah, well, the only other thing I was thinking too, Brandon, we have all the clinicians, all the staff have patient satisfaction surveys that are sent out to our clients and patients, of which we have access to the residents' uh, data, as do our clinic managers and stuff, and so those are those are addressed and reviewed, you know, intermittently. Obviously, there's a I can't recall any specific problem that's arisen over the over the years and stuff where we've had to sort of address things along the way but they definitely are addressed at midterm and then then also you know towards the end and it doesn't it kind of presents more like what what their current satisfaction is with their you know like what the feedback is from the patients that they're seeing and what we're looking for is like trends and you know how they treat people and their professionalism you know their timeliness and how responsible they are for their work and, and think communication documentation all of that and so they they do get you know they do get feedback along the way you know you know kind of is ongoing and, and what we sort of ask you know and what we have to track is that that's another challenge that sometimes programs have is that when like when vn first came in so we're seeing him day one in july july one we need to kind of take a picture of him like you know, all those aspects of how he practiced, his knowledge base, you know, just how he managed things, his, everything, you know, communication, documentation, so on and so forth. We need to take a picture of that on day day one and then take the screenshot then midterm and then, okay, now we're going to look at him at the end. And hopefully that's, that's where ultimately we should see this growth. You know, that's going to be the thing that we're going to be able to see. Some of which comes out, yes, yeah, see. Some of which comes out with, you know, with the information that dave talked about in terms of photos in terms of patient outcomes and some of the patient satisfaction and then the other piece with seeing their growth and their outcome is just how they how they perform on all their practical exams written exams and so on and so forth throughout the throughout the year so
1: gotcha and you know guys i know we've talked about you know the program through a lot of different avenues now but one thing we haven't really talked on a lot is you know, that feedback from residents as they leave Gunderson, or maybe at that final review on kind of what are the the bigger limitations or constructive critiques of the program. So what have you guys heard from feedback from residents that could perhaps make um, the program even better than it is now?
3: Throughout the years, we we interview all the, you know, the residents have a a survey that they do on site. And then we do a, a basically a uh, review and and sort of an interview prior to their departure get direct feedback have them fill out forms and stuff so it's it's organized and i would say that that over when you think about over the years over the 23 years the different things if i can give you some examples brandon about like what has been said just examples would be you know we were given feedback initially uh, early on we um our curriculum was spread out. Our advanced didactics were spread out over the entire year, so they had four hours a week for the entire year. People thought, and we got feedback about, "Boy, it would be really nice if we we condensed that down to to six six months." And so we got basically all of the information in six months. The thought being is that the residents felt as though that it would have been nice to have had that, you know, that information to be able to utilize then in the clinic for six months, to be able to, you know, kind of integrate it into their practice, you know, for six months. So that's just an example of what we talked about. There has been some feedback over the course of the years about, about um, just, how would you say, um, always, always, I think, you know, with especially with sports residencies, the number of requirements up until recently when the new quality standards came out, The number of of responsibilities that a PT, a sports PT resident had to complete was compared to other residency programs. Other residency programs in terms of ortho, neuro, whatever it may be, you had to have, there was a base requirement for all programs to have one written exam and two practical exams. Okay, sports we had, we had one written exam but then you had, in terms of the number of practical exams all the way from the emergency, there was, it was probably in the neighborhood of about 20 to 25 things that our program, the residents are responsible to do. And that was monumental. That was a consistent thing that we took, you know, and we tried various things over the years to, I don't want to say, clean it up, but to make it more efficient for them. Some years we succeeded, frankly, other years we, we didn't. And I think we are lucky that um, I think that with the new quality standard, a lot of that has gone away. We still have, a lot of of uh, outcome data that we have to take but it's not anywhere close to what it has before but that was i think that was a, a definitely a limitation was that people kind of came in in that in the year that year's time and it was really a monumental task and a lot of stress uh that took place on the resident side and the faculty side that last month where all of a sudden boy i've got Five practical exams that I have to finish up. I've got my emergency response practical I have to do. Or I've got these checkoffs for various testing things I have to do, and it was a lot of time. So we've tried. We tried, you know, over the years, the course of the years, to sort of like again listen to the residents and try and come up with systems efficient. So,
2: and I think those changes have made the the residents and the faculty a lot more happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's yeah quite stressful from a, a faculty standpoint. And you'd see the resident coming at you, and you're like, okay. I need to be receptive. They have to get these things done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think well, and the
3: other thing I was, and again, these are a couple of nice, but they're limitations. It's like we had, we had, and I think Vienn and Danny, our current residents, were able to take advantage of this. Is that we we got feedback from the residents that boy, I wish we had more content in this particular area. And like an example, it was is that four years ago we had one of the residents that wanted to get more advanced training in sports performance and advanced training with. With collegiate athletes we didn't have that content in place so we were we heard that feedback early on in the fall when they were going through it made con but we got the feedback listened to it and then we made contacts with our our relationships with with some professors over the university and set up rotations now that have carried on for the last four years where every year in january the residents all go over to some advanced strengthening that the strength and conditioning group at the university goes through with their off season football conditioning. So, but again, that was a direct, direct feedback based on a limitation of what they felt like they more, more topics and more things, more information that they wanted that we were trying to respond to.
2: Uh, I know a couple of changes that we made in the the last year, maybe not uh, that they're the biggest limitations, but some changes we made based off of feedback from, both the residents and staff Uh, last years that we had uh, the residents were feeling like the demands on them in the, in the, in the, their office hours uh, and then being pulled out into the clinic for uh, uh, impromptu evals that are referred back from the physicians that may be sports and or if PTs had interesting cases and they're pulling them out of the clinic. Now that's always been an expectation of ours. Uh, So this year we just, more clearly defined that and uh, revisited that several times upon orientation so that they knew that was our expectation. Uh, and we, uh, I don't want to say we documented it, but we all knew that we were doing it so the residents uh, would, would be able to know that this was the expectation. And if they had an issue with it, then uh, we knew we covered that. Uh, another one that we did, there was some uh, we use, utilize PTAs to work with the residents as well. We want them to be comfortable with using support staff personnel to make their clinic practice more efficient if that's available to them in the future and to have a high um, high um, uh, athlete population where you may uh, have one athlete in the clinic at a time and have to multitask like they will in the training room. And uh, some of the feedback was from the PTAs were that they weren't being utilized as well as they, they could be, uh, and or uh, some of the communication wasn't the best. So again, we, we sat down and we had meetings uh, with the residents and the PTAs and clearly outlined the expectations and then followed that up again uh, with a couple other meetings just to make sure things were going okay and how can we improve upon this uh, even further. So those seem to have addressed the issues that came up uh, in the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, and you guys had mentioned, apart from, you know, the feedback and such, and of course you guys were mentioning kind of the um, changes when it comes to the requirements with Abtree and some of the changes that have gone through with that, which I think is really good. Um, One of the things on there that is specific to sports as, you know, of course that requirement of 40% of total clients that residents see need to be classified as sports PT cases, what do you guys think on their criteria for that? Is 40% reasonable, too low, too high? or What do you guys
2: think? I think that most of our residents have been managing that and doing well with that that percentage. Uh, at times uh, during the year, they, they keep a log throughout the year. So we have a running total of that uh, as long as the patient or the resident is staying up to date with that. Um, and at times they may dip below that a little bit. And then uh, we may encourage them to uh, take ownership of that. Talk with our schedulers up front. Talk with uh, maybe some of the physicians. Seek out uh, referrals from them and or uh, seek out additional opportunities in the training room uh, for the for that patient population. And I think Dan, we discussed today that you were at uh, what fifty percent. Yep, uh, fifty. Yeah. So he's doing quite well with his numbers, but uh, I think traditionally we're between the 40 and 50% and haven't run into too many difficulties uh, with that.
3: That's one of those things, Brent, I think that it'd be great. I think it'd be great if it was higher. I would love to have it be mandatory to have 60 to 70% or higher, but that's not practical. I mean, I think that there's some – I think Vn is going to be – he was accepted into a fellowship program for Division One athletes for next year – and so there's a captive patient population there. You have the, I was privileged to, to sit on a site review for the United States Military Academy at West Point. Here we go, captive military-based population. Well, guess what? Your, your athlete population in terms of warrior athletes, 100%. But in, for most programs, I think it has to be that balance between you know, maybe what the preferred would be versus maybe, okay, well, this is a minimum. And I think 40%, I, I, I don't know, I, I think that that definitely at least represents, uh, you know, that a near majority of their clients in some way have a, have a connection to a sport or recreation in their background.
1: Yeah, and, and guys, kind of you guys had mentioned a lot of the, you know, Abtree changes earlier, and if there's any other changes that you guys didn't mention, feel free to jump them in on this on this next follow-up as well. Um, but apart from what you guys had said regarding, of course, streamlining and the other, you know, changes that Abtree's made, um, what are your thoughts on some of the other requirements and regulations that they've kind of made when it comes to, like, Costs, if site visits are a thing for you guys, mentorship requirements, or any of the other um, you know changes that Abtree has done that have either kind of either helped programs or you think are concerning for programs.
3: From a, the mentoring, really hasn't changed. That 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 really hasn't changed in terms of requirements for mentoring. Um, the I think that the what you're speaking to relative to like site visits and things like this. That's a that's a toughie because I think it's one thing to have a a system such as ours, that all of our facilities are at one place, and so our site visit is pretty simple. We don't have six satellite clinics and things like this, or for that matter, hundreds of clinic clinical facilities. But in terms of um, in terms of the the you know so those requirements for those programs, I and I believe there's probably some ongoing discussion about about that in terms of you know how that's going to all. You know, kind of play out. The bottom line, I think, with the with with any program that's being accredited, though, there has to there has to be some accountability that that there is a you know, especially for those programs that do have multi sites, that there's some guarantee that 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 there's consistency between between the sites and and they're all basically being uh, the resident. Experience in each of those sites is comparable in terms of the you know the expertise that they're getting. In most ways, the the didactic piece for those is, is easy. The cost from a program standpoint, however, with in terms of like the the annual fees, and then also when you come about with reaccreditation, you know that potentially that potentially can can be an issue. I think that fee is basically you know tried to look at the, the okay, so what is the actual cost you know, in order to administrate that accreditation, you know, on a yearly basis and then also with the site visit teams. And I think probably it's probably I would think that the costs are a little bit more acute when the reaccreditation document comes up in terms of like, so how many sites are you going are you going to need to visit? And how many clinicians do you need to see and does the site visit it, does it occur all on one day versus now? I believe that there are times, and I don't know the specifics about it, but I know that there are times that if there are X number of sites that need to be visited and stuff, you have to, you'll have you extend the site out to two days, which is more cost. But oh, I don't know. I don't know, Brian. I, I, I sort of struggle with that, but I, I'm sort of like an advocate, and I think that that's, that's necessary in terms of and – I, and I know that it's an extra cost in some cases – the 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 cost is is borne by I know that the residents in some programs I'm not speaking to all but there is tuition that's in, that's involved and stuff and I'm not aware of like with with the cost with the fee, if the accreditation costs are going up does then that cost get put down right down onto the uh, uh, the resident or the fellow and uh, you might you know, know that yourself, but I, I'm not aware of that. But I think from a standpoint of, of justifying justifying the cost, I, I believe, I guess I'd be an advocate that I believe a certain amount of oversight needs to be done on those bigger programs that are spread out just to ensure, you know, consistency.
1: Yeah, and I guess a couple thoughts on that, because yes, the program I'm with is definitely one of the larger Um, hybrid based programs where there's a lot of sites that are added very very frequently so of course that is a big concern you know with getting all those site visits in from a financial standpoint for our program and i know we had two guys on in the past um cameron mcdonald and joe donnelly they were kind of giving um, their perspective from heading up orthopedic residency and fellowship programs on these changes and uh one of the guys and he made a really good point about you know with the site visits that are proposed and his kind of thought was well how is doing one brief site visit necessarily going to be reflective of a quality site? You know, Because one day or a certain amount of time frame may not be enough to really get an ad- adequate view. And the viewpoint is, you know, should that be the program director's job to vet the sites rather than an outside agency going through that? And I don't know the right answer to that. I just know that that was a point that was brought up. So, and it's, it's hard. And I know I, I get from what they're trying to do. Like I get how each, how what Abtree is trying to work towards. I get that. But I think it's also harder too, because something's got to give on some of these little things, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I know that they've tried to be a little bit more up to date with some of the, some of the, when you go on a site visits at a lot of times, as opposed to the site team, being centered in one place and having to travel to multiple sites and stuff. There's, I've been on site, on site visits now that I, you know, that we have, you know, Zoom meetings and we, you know, speak with people electronically and we visit with residents, graduates that are, you know, obviously off site that we don't necessarily have to travel to. Um, but again, the hard piece, and, and again, I don't believe that it's a requirement like, you know, if we are, you know, in terms of like when we go to do a site, site visit and stuff, we see... A sample or an example of a mentoring session but we don't require ment like if you have a system with like in our facility if we have six mentors currently that are working with our residents the site team doesn't come in and evaluate all six mentors they just have a typical mentoring session and I I believe that would carry over into a lot of the other all the you know the other site site visits as well but um, yeah so I'm not sure if I have a complete complete answer for you but um, I just know that uh, it it, there has to be there has to be some means of being able to sort of document and be able to ensure I mean his and this point is well taken you're kind of coming in on one day and taking a picture of essentially back to that picture analogy you're coming in and just taking a snapshot of that program that's been very well prepared they know you're coming so they have everything set up but remember in that particular day You also, the the challenge for the site team is you're just not talking with the residency director because they could give you their spiel on things. You're also triangulating information with all the other parties. And I think that's the key thing about with multiple sites that you just need to have some means of being able to do that same kind of triangulation, whether it be direct or through electronic means.
1: Yeah, no, and that's a good point. And I know it's definitely a a very complex issue. And I know still there's a lot of discussions currently taking place on working out some of those little details there. So I'm looking forward to kind of hearing how that'll turn out. And, you know, guys, I know we've talked about a lot about the residency and post-professional education, but we'd like to finish up with our final question. And now if you want to say something that you either said beforehand or bring up something new, feel free. And this is not limited to post-professional education. This can be entry level. This can be whatever kind of realm of education you guys would wish to talk about. But the question is, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, um, physical therapy or other healthcare provider related, which aspect would you change, and how would you change it?
2: Well, I have one specific thought that would involve cost. Uh, one of the things that's always kind of bothered me is when students are coming out for their clinical rotations, and yet they appear to be paying full tuition while they're working at the clinical sites so. It's one of my thoughts would be just, hey, hey, let's give them a reduction in their actual tuition and try to make that more reflective of the, the time and energy that the faculty is is uh, putting in with their site visits. And uh, I know a lot of the, the students are doing electronic uh, classwork at that point in time, too, so that requires, obviously, the the instructor's uh, time and effort. Um but that would be one of my thoughts as to let's see if we can reduce that a little bit. Um, you know, and if they do reduce that, uh, the other idea would to maybe you try to, uh, give some of that money towards the actual clinical site, not to the actual PT themselves, because I think that would maybe cause some ethical dilemma with grading them. But, uh, you know, potentially that, that would. I, I'm, I'm really more in favor of just trying to reduce the cost for the student versus paying the site. We're kind of all, Used to taking that on anyway. Um, the thought in my mind initially is if we do that, do, do they then, you know, raise tuition through the other uh, two and some change years uh, to make up for that difference anyway. So.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd always have to bring up finances, but I don't have the answer to that. And one thing I do want to know is or do want to say is like, I respect all the tax members in academia. I know all of them actually try to defend students quite a bit, so I know it's not all their fault. Um, But, yeah, I just wish somehow loans could decrease um, with entry-level PT programs. And the other one I'd say is um, as far as, like, sports residencies, admission dates, we somewhat have a uniform match day, we'll call it, um, which is, like, March 1st. One thing is just seeing, like, um, the numbers of open spots and interested applicants in, like, the ortho and neuro sections, I just wish there was some way to have a post-match day period where any program that didn't fill their position could reach out to the applicants um, that might be interested in, maybe they didn't get their choice, but be interested in interviewing or being selected for their open spots, just so I think it's a win-win for the programs and um, getting an applicant for that year, and then also the applicants, you know, maybe taking a deeper thought and saying maybe the move is worth it, or maybe this program is worth it, even though it was my first choice.
3: And and Brandon, I'll I'll kind of finish up maybe, and I'll go back to what you said initially in your introduction with us. And that was when you got out of school, there was some sense of your message was that you're a little disappointed, almost like I got the sense that you just didn't feel like maybe you were as well prepared as you thought you should have been. And over the course of you know, my professional career as a PT, and I'll just speak to PT, but I think it carries over another healthcare-related education. You've looked at the, the expanse and the development of, of continuing development of the clinical education piece. I think the kids coming out are getting excellent content in terms of most programs, again, if, if they, they have to go through CAPTAIN, so they basically have excellent content. But where I think the, the programs fall down, and I would like to see it go further, would be to have more robust, across-the-board, consistent clinical education. And what that would mean, frankly, my hope, maybe it's way after I'm gone, is that residency education, if not the model, have something similar that people would all be required to, to do a program of advanced education, clinical mentored education after they're finished, because... Because it's so inconsistent with people getting out of school and uh, between different programs and different, obviously, if you have 50 people in a class and they are going out and 50 different clinical sites that they're actually, you know, getting some of their clinical work, you're going to have good sites. You're going to have sites that aren't maybe uh, meeting the needs of the students quite as much and and I think to have programs that you know like if in fact over the years that, that residencies continue to evolve and develop at least there's a means of which that they are getting accredited the standards are are getting accredited and confirmed so that when when kids come out and they experience that that there's a more consistent mentored product that at the end of that year I think they're going to be far stronger clinicians ready you know better ready to, you know, to kind of get out and practice. And I don't wanna suggest that a lot of people aren't ready and they don't succeed when they first get out of entry level, they, they do, but I would say that what you said, I think um, as opposed to being, um, how would you say, just a little, not, not haphazard, that's not true, but basically just a little bit more laissez-faire in terms of being able to further develop your skills and fine tune it, find your mentors, if they're available in the facilities that you get, more organized, and 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 that's what I would like to see. And I could see that across the board with not just PT, OT, other and other areas of healthcare as well.
1: Yeah, and it comes back to like the thoughts on that. I know that that's kind of a push that APTA is working towards, is trying to make this residency this normal continuum after Mm -hmm. entry level education. And of course, they're recognizing that that's going to take a long time to work towards that because there's a lot of barriers such as costs. I mean, being able to make the cost, but also having a adequate supply of quality sites and quality programs to fit that demand. So we've definitely got a long ways to go before that could become a reality. But I think you bring up good points on that though, for sure. Well, guys, thank you again so much for your time and everything. Where can people reach out or kind of follow up with you guys? Should they kind of have a question about to either what we've talked about or about Gunderson's program?
3: I think that if anybody that would like to learn more about our particular program, I mean, we have our website with uh, with Gunnarson Lutheran Health System. They just obviously do a search for Gunnarsson Lutheran Health System and look under medical education. We're prominently listed under one of the programs, and uh, and I believe that if they do, I mean, there's a lot there's information there, contact information for David and myself, and it really kind of maps things out in terms of the, you know, the content describes the curriculum, actually describes the benefits, salary and benefit structure and, and housing and all the other things that kind of go into it. And uh, and I will say too, Brandon, that I mean, particularly, and I would say this for our program, and I think all the, pro, all the residency programs, are, I, again, I'm a big advocate for this, but I think this is true, that if people are interested, if there are people that are interested in doing a program, or if you're in a site, if you're in an area, contact that program director. They are going to be excited to hear from you. They'll talk with you over the phone. If you're close and if you have a break during a, a rotation or you know on some type of break over a holiday, come in and do your homework and come and visit. Spend time in the clinic with them and stuff. We have lots of people in visit with us before they even apply, which I think works, you know, to our advantage and get to know them and then it works to their advantage to see, wow, is this the place that I really want to be? And luckily, we've had our residents, I think, almost uniformly, that sometimes the candidates or people that are interested want to talk to someone who's in the middle of it. So they want to talk to the residents or graduates. And so, so you know, again, uniform, uniformly across the board, our, our graduates and current residents have been very good about, you know, fielding calls and providing it too. So...
1: Well, perfect guys. And well, and again, gentlemen, thank you all so much for your time, your insight this evening on this. Um, You know, I, I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners do as well. And, you know, it's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Thank you for hosting this. I think it's a great way to disseminate information and kudos to you for doing it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's fun. I mean, it's funny because I can't believe how much I've learned in the past couple of years of really starting this thing because I came from one frame of reference on, in view on education, and my knowledge of what was involved, and it feels like I've totally, exponentially increased by just talking and learning from a lot of people, so, I, and, I, and I recognize there's a lot of people out there like that that really don't know what it's like and all that's involved, and, you know, I've heard of a lot of creative solutions to certain things, and I'm just hoping it's getting discussions going and you're leading the change, so we'll continue to do it.
3: Thank you so, so much. Excellent.
1: Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare.com which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the
2: content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HETpodcast, on Instagram, HETpodcast, on Facebook, The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast,